program note. There is the mother of all curse words in this episode, as it comes in a quote. That quote is from an Australian commando, so no surprise there. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 285, The Fall of Timor. The island of Timor, 700 kilometers or 434 miles east of Java, and 686 kilometers or 426 miles from Darwin, Australia, was first colonized by the Portuguese in 1520. The sandalwood on the island was prized if the natives themselves were not. Early in its occupation, Timor changed hands several times between the Portuguese and the Dutch, who already had surrounding colonies. To stop the fighting, in 1859, a formal boundary was set. The Dutch now controlled West Timor, the Portuguese East Timor. When Nazi Germany invaded Poland on September 1, 1939, Portugal declared that though the Anglo-Portuguese alliance, which dated back to 1386, was still valid, as the British did not ask for Portuguese help, that government would stay neutral in this war. That status would not change until 1944, when the U.S. asked for and received the right to establish a military base on the island of Santa Maria in the Azores, located just east of the center point between Washington, D.C. and Portugal in the Atlantic. With this alteration, Portugal became a non-belligerent. But none of this helped Australia, looking for any and all allies, as it knew that London would be focused on Europe. Still, Canberra asked the British to work on the Portuguese and Dutch, but the Portuguese government would not budge, due to pressure applied by Japan. But, still trying to help itself, Australia sent out two battalions, one to Ambon of the Maluku Islands, which, as we have seen, fell anyways on February 3rd, and the other, Sparrow Force, commanded by Lieutenant Colonel William Laggett, which included the 240th Battalion, the 2nd Independent Commando Company under Major Alexander Spence, and a battery of coastal artillery, about 1,400 men in total, to Dutch-controlled West Timor, specifically to the capital city of Kupang. Later would come a squadron of RAAF Hudson Bombers. They would be fighting alongside about 500 Dutch troops under Lieutenant Colonel Nico Van Straten, made up mostly of Indonesian soldiers and Dutch officers. Sadly, right away, many of the Aussies were struck down with malaria. To be sure, the Portuguese, not relying on the goodwill of the Japanese, did plan to beef up their meager force on their side of the island and around their capital, Dili, with 800 more troops from Mozambique, but they would arrive too late. For whatever reason, Allied commanders did not believe that a large-scale Japanese force would come for Timor, that its airfields, to be sure, would be bombed, to keep them neutral, and that the improbable invaders would respect Portuguese neutrality. It was not to be. Whereas the Australians were worried about 
and rightly so, shielding any forward air bases that might be used against Darwin or Allied shipping. With the Australians now on Timor, the Portuguese Prime Minister, Antonio de Oliveira Salazar, protested, saying that this would give the Japanese cause. His governor on the island followed suit by declaring himself a prisoner of the Allies and called this move by Australia the first invasion. As for the Portuguese people and natives on the east side, they were, overall, happy to have more troops defending their island. To wit, some of the Dutch troops, along with the Australian Commando Company, was sent to Portuguese Timor. However, the Portuguese Prime Minister was correct, and Tokyo would use this buildup of Allied troops as an excuse to invade and occupy East Timor, but they were going to anyway. On February 12th, Brigadier William Veal arrived on Timor. He would take command of Sparrow Force, but again what he found was that many of those men were now weak from malaria. Still, Timor needed to hold out, if not indefinitely, then as long as possible, because not only was it a stopover for short-range planes going from Darwin to Java, but General Douglas MacArthur also needed Timor to supply his men still resisting in the Philippines, specifically the Penfui airfield on the far southwestern end of Timor. Knowing this, the Japanese had already launched two air raids at Penfui in late January, but their air attacks were not all they could have been, thanks to British anti-air guns and 11 or so American P-40 fighters coming in from Darwin. And feeling the pressure from those air attacks, clearly a softening up for a coming invasion, Abda Command sent Timor some 500 more Dutch troops, and the British 79th Light Anti-Aircraft Battery. Additional Allied forces of Australians and Americans were to land later that February. But, as we have seen, the U.S. heavy cruiser USS Houston and the destroyer USS Perry were escorting supply ships when they were forced back to Darwin by Japanese air attacks. Then, on February 19th, Darwin itself was bombed by the Japanese, damaging or sinking at least 50 vessels, destroying 30 aircraft, and killing 236 people. With the closest Australian location wrecked, Timor was on its own. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing, it's all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. 
For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. As the Japanese Southern Task Force approached Timor, its commander, Admiral Nabutake Kondo, had planes from the Celebes and Ambon search the Timor Sea to the south of the island, as well as the Arafura Sea to its east. Then Vice Admiral Chuichi Nagumo of the 1st Air Fleet of Pearl Harbor fame took over. His would be providing air support for the invasion and were the ones who hit Darwin. With the island of Timor free of Allied ships and planes, during the night of February 19th through the 20th, some 1,500 Japanese soldiers of the 228th Regiment landed at Dili, just left of center of the north coast of the Portuguese half of the island. Colonel Sadachichi Doi and his men had been lucky, as their transport ships were mistaken by the watchers as Portuguese reinforcements. Still, the Allied defenders closest by were able to withdraw as their now-exposed position was being covered by 18 Australian commandos from Number 2 section. As the Portuguese and Allied defenders pulled back, the commandos and approaching Japanese troops engaged each other. Reports vary, but the invaders seemed to have lost many more men than did the 18 commandos firing at them. However, another commando team was less lucky. As Number 7 section was pulling back, they ran into a Japanese roadblock. All but one of the Australians was killed outright. As the leading units of Colonel Doy's men moved further inland and in impressive numbers, the Australians in the area pulled back to the southeast, heading for the relative safety of the mountains. But Lieutenant Colonel Nico von Stratton and his 200 Dutch East Indy troops went to the southwest, towards Dutch territory. And there it was again. The defenders were spreading themselves out, being pursued by much larger numbers. The Japanese operation in the north was going well. However, as the defenders were about to find out, that landing had been a feint. On the southwest section of the island, the Japanese launched extensive bombing raids. In fact, they were so bad, the remaining Australian planes were ordered back to Darwin, as they would most have assuredly been destroyed, without inflicting sufficient damage. Then, with the southwest in a state of chaos, the main body of the 228th Regimental Group of about 4,000 soldiers and five Type 94 tankettes landed near the Paha River on the southwest coast, due south of the Penfui airfield. This was on the early morning of February 20th. As the Allies were expecting a landing to the north, closer to the airfield, or at the capital, Kupong, also in the north, this area to the south was undefended. Having achieved this surprise, the invaders moved north, to engage the 240th Battalion at Penfui, but also sent men to the northeast to cut off any Allied troops who wanted to retreat to the east. 
The men of Sparrow Force would find that as the enemy approached them from the south, the majority of their artillery was to their north, expecting to repulse a landing there. But almost as bad, the Japanese company sent to the northeast was about to run right into the headquarters of Sparrow Force and its defending troops, who were, again, focused to the north. When word came of the approaching enemy troops, headquarters was moved to the northeast, heading towards Champ Long on February 21st. But maintaining this theme of unpredictability, the Japanese, besides landing a small force into the supposed inviolate Portuguese territory, and then landing their main attack to the south in Dutch territory, had another surprise in store for the Allied defenders. With a larger enemy force coming at Penfui airfield from the south, Lieutenant Colonel William Laggett ordered its destruction. But as they began to move out to the east, they found blocking their path some 300 Japanese Marine paratroopers from the 3rd Yokosuka Special Naval Landing Force. On February 22nd, they had come down near Usua, which is in between the airfield, and Chamlong to the northeast, their destination. But Leggett quickly surmised that taking on 300 men versus the roughly two battalions he was hearing of to his south was the better way to go. So he ordered his men east, and the fighting began. This clash went on through the night, with both sides starting to run low on ammunition, to which Leggett ordered a bayonet charge. By the morning of February 23rd, all but 78 of the paratroopers were dead or wounded, and yet it made little difference, as by then elements of the main Japanese force began to catch up to Leggett and company. With 84 men dead and 132 wounded and running low on ammunition, Leggett agreed to surrender at Yusua. It would have been suicide to continue. Still, this fighting bought Brigadier William Veal and the Sparrow Force Headquarters Unit, about 290 Australian and Dutch troops, time to head further east. Their goal and only chance of survival was to hook up with the two Second Independent Company, or Commandos, under Major Alexander Spence. As February ended, the Japanese had control of the majority of Dutch Timor, certainly the airfield and ports, and the Portuguese airport and capital, Dili, to the northeast. And as Penfui Airport was in Japanese hands, their range to launch air raids had increased that much further. Yet the Australian commando squadron was still free and operating in the mountains to the far east. Meanwhile, Brigadier Veal and Van Stratton's forces were along the southern coast, avoiding detection and seeking out the commandos. As the commandos were hitting the Japanese in Portuguese Timor, only to disappear back into the jungle, that, combined with the cruelty of the Japanese, quickly led the locals to feel sympathetic towards the Aussies. In time, the Australians would have access to Timorese guides, carriers, and mountain ponies. But just as important, at least early on, the commandos were allowed to use the local telephone system to keep tabs on their pursuers and 
stay one step ahead. Staying with the Commandos and their exploits easily qualify for its own episode and further reading. As the Japanese controlled the air over Timor, the Aussies got around, using the river systems hidden under the jungle canopy. And getting around, they made use of full boats, or collapsible or foldable kayaks, or boats. With these, they could gather reconnaissance, launch raids, and disappear as needed. Now, technically, the Portuguese officials, including the governor, Ferreira del Carvajo, stayed neutral and thus kept their heads and stayed out of jail. But as we have seen, the people were on the side of the raiders and helped them when they could. Of course, over the next two and a half years, many Timorese, Portuguese, and Dutch would be executed for helping the foreigners or resisting on their own. Colonel Doy was quickly getting annoyed that not all the Allies had surrendered, so he sent out the Australian Honorary Consul and local Qantas agent, David Ross, to find the guerrilla warriors and ask them to surrender. But the commando leader, Major Spence, immediately responded with, Surrender? Surrender be fucked! Ross responded to this by giving Spence the closest Japanese unit's exact location. Spence then took it up another level and had Ross tell the Portuguese that any supplies given to the Aussies by them would be reimbursed by the Australian government. The wider game of blind chess throughout the jungles and mountains continued until early March, when Veal and Van Stratton's forces finally made contact with the commandos. Between all of them, there were enough parts to put together a radio nicknamed Winnie the War Winner. Darwin was contacted. Things back home were put into motion, and by May, Australian planes were dropping supplies to the raiding Allied forces. But now it was the turn of Colonel Doy to make his move. Before May was out, the colonel called in the Tiger of Singapore. The Imperial Japanese Army had numerous tigers in their ranks, officers who were ruthless or who had achieved incredible victories. This tiger, his name is unknown, had helped win in the Malayan campaign and in the Battle of Singapore. On May 22nd, Tiger, leading a force of troops while atop a white horse, not exactly a solid tactic in jungle warfare, but showy as hell, was approaching Remexio, just to the southeast of the Portuguese capital, Dili. An Australian patrol was tipped off by Portuguese and Timorese locals, so an ambush was set up. By the time the shooting was over, the Tiger had lost at least four men. But the Tiger would try again, but was ambushed again. This time, an Australian sniper killed the tiger, and some 24 of his men died with him. The survivors ran back to Dili. As things were going relatively well, Major Spence was promoted to lieutenant colonel and made the commanding officer, which allowed Veal and Van Stratton to be evacuated to Australia by a RAAF Catalina, 
Besides which, the two officers were not trained for such operations. Before May was out, Royal Australian naval vessels had dropped off their first supply to the commandos. By June, with the commandos still going strong, the Japanese began to blame the governor, Carvalho, for not punishing the locals hard enough when they helped the Allies. On June 24th, they congratulated the commandos' fighting spirit, but again sent in Ross to ask them to surrender. The other part of the message was that Doi was having reinforcements coming, enough to send out large parties to hunt down the Aussies. Ross delivered the message. The reply was basically the same as last time. But this time, Ross would not return to Dealey as tension was mounting there. On July 16th, he was evacuated to Australia. But Dewey wasn't bluffing about the reinforcements. In August, Lieutenant General Yuitsu Tsushiashi and parts of the 48th Division began to land on Timor. He had seen action in the Philippines and had been nothing short of brilliant on Java. When more of the 48th Division arrived, he planned on a massive drive to push the enemy to the central south coast and then annihilate them. By the second week of August, Tsuchiyashi's drives began. Two units left Dili and drove south. Another left Manatuto, located about 40 kilometers or 24 miles east of Dili, and pushed to the southwest. The last unit started in Dutch Timor and pushed east. With such overwhelming numbers, the commandos were being herded against their will. But then, outside events altered the Japanese plan. To be sure, the Allies on Timor were a headache, maybe even a bit of an embarrassment for the Japanese army. But the stubbornness of the Allies in and around Rabaul was another matter. Before the commandos could be crushed, those parts of the 48th Division in the fighting on Timor were shipped to Rabaul. Still, before their departure, gains had been made. The town of Malbisi, to the southwest of Dili, and in the center of that part of Portuguese Timor, hence no man's land, was captured, as was the southern port of Beko, to the southwest of Malbisi. But this would have negative consequences for the Portuguese rulers and the Japanese, who were trying to get the local economy going again to serve the empire. After being taken over by the Japanese and given back to the Portuguese, the people in Malbisi rose up and began fighting the Portuguese, another headache for the island's new masters. But as August turned to September, the main part of the 48th Division now landed on Timor. It was their turn to have a crack at the Aussies. To match this move, as best they could, Australia sent 450 men of the 2nd 4th Independent Company, a.k.a. Lancer Force, who were also commando-trained. They arrived on September 23rd. But trying a different tack, the Japanese began recruiting Timorese to help them fight. In truth, they were being used as cannon fodder, being put in the front line when the Japanese attacked the commandos. The Aussies responded by making it official 
they had been doing this all along, but informally, as they had been trained to think on their feet, of giving weapons to those Timorese who had proved themselves worthy. The Japanese again tried to help themselves, but ended up making more enemies of the Portuguese when they gave a deadline date of November 15th for all Portuguese civilians to move to a designated neutral zone. Those who did not move would be considered accomplices of the Allies. The Portuguese used this threat to get the Australians to evacuate about 300 women and children. Many of the men stayed behind to actively help the commandos. On November 11th, commando leader Spence was replaced by Major Bernard Callanin. Spence surely needed the rest, and the experience he gathered was needed to teach other officers. Further, the Dutch soldiers still on Timor were also in need of a rest. So on the last night of November, two Australian corvettes were to drop off Dutch reinforcements at Batano, just five kilometers up from the Japanese-held Beko on the south coast. They would then pick up 190 Dutch soldiers and 150 Portuguese civilians. But the corvette carrying the Dutch reinforcements was sunk by an enemy air attack. Most of those on board the Armadale were lost. As 1942 was coming to a close, the Australian and Dutch troops were still giving better than they got. However, the Japanese were getting closer to closing off the island's shores. The commandos had a harder time getting fresh supplies and found themselves more on the defensive rather than their usual hit-and-run raids. Besides which, other theaters, like in New Guinea, had a higher priority for MacArthur. By December of 42, Australian operations on Timor began winding down. On the night of December 11th, those of the original Sparrow Force were evacuated, again with a few Portuguese civilians. Still, a few officers stayed behind, just in case Lancer Force stayed for the duration. But it was soon decided to remove them as well. Late on January 9th, the majority of the 240th Battalion, and again some 50 Portuguese, were evacuated. But in their place, an intelligence team, known as S-Force, would stay on Timor. Yet they were soon detected by the Japanese, and the hunt began anew. Unwilling to risk their lives, it was decided to remove S-Force and the last of Lancer Force. So they began the trek to the eastern edge of Timor, to be picked up by the American submarine USS Gudgeon on February 10th. Note, the Gudgeon was the first U.S. submarine to sink an enemy vessel in the war, the Japanese submarine I-73. However, the Allied troops had to fight their way to the far east of Timor. Some 40 commandos died during the journey. Yet the records show that many, many more Japanese were killed trying to stop them. In truth, the Battle of Timor had been over in three days. The Japanese controlled the airfields and major ports, but the Australian civilians back home had their spirits lifted by the continued resistance on Timor, what little they knew about it. 
Like Doolittle's raid on the Japanese home islands, the resistance gave the Australians hope. And on a tactical level, they continued fighting on Timor, tied down an entire division from adding its might to the early phases of the Battle of New Guinea. But, of course, as in all war, it was the civilians that suffered the most. The Japanese would go on to kill between 40,000 and 70,000 Timorese, Portuguese, and Dutch locals. Timor was held by the Japanese until their surrender in September of 1945. On September 5th, the commanding Japanese officer returned power to Portuguese Governor Manuel Carvalho. On September 11th, the Australian Timor force disembarked in Kupang Harbor to accept the surrender of all Japanese forces on Timor, as well as the ranking occupying officer, Colonel Kaida Tatsuichi. 